Well, welcome to our first Sunday School lesson of the new year. We're going to present this on January 7th, 2024. We're going to do a series now, and we're going to take our time going through it, but we're going to look at the life of Abraham. Abraham is such an uh, important figure in the Bible. It's important to Christians. It's certainly important to Jews. And as I think about everything that's going on in our nation right now, all the anti-Semitic rhetoric and protests, all of that type of thing. It's uh, clear to me that people don't really understand who the Jews are and uh, where they started. And so I thought we would go back and we would take a look in the book of Genesis at what the Bible says about Abraham, or in the early part of it, just Abram, and how he got to uh, the land that the Romans called Palestine. And by the way, Palestine was never the official name of uh, that region in terms of the Jews. They never called it Palestine. Palestine was a Roman insult whenever they, in A.D. 70, destroyed the temple and they destroyed Jerusalem and that type of thing. They started calling it Palestine because it's a derivative of Philistia. I know it doesn't sound like that much in English, but it works out that way in Latin. And um, they did that to say, this is not the land of the Jews, this is the land of the Philistines. And you remember in your Old Testament studies, the Philistines were the perpetual enemy of the Jews, of the Israelis. So the Romans were just kind of uh, on their way out after destroying the land and, and the temple and all of that. They're just another poke in the eye. So uh, we're going to call it Israel, and uh, it's the land that God gave them. It's a land that they were promised, and it's a land that they've occupied for a long, long time. They're the only nation in the world that occupies the same land, speaks the same language, and has the same religion as they did uh, over 3,000 years ago. Very, very special place, and... Uh, so there are some promises and some things that God gives to Abraham that I don't think are automatically just transferred to the church and no longer applied to the Jews. I just don't think you can do that and uh, interpret the Bible properly. I don't think you can do that and uh, give credibility to the Lord. He made some promises. Now Abraham, of course, is very prominent in Jewish life. The Jewish people in our introduction, would always proudly point to Abraham as their father, meaning ancestor when it says that. And that's both physically and spiritually. And they refer to Father Abraham in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. And Jesus confronts them in John chapter 3, verse, uh, pardon me, John chapter 8, verse 39. Now listen to this. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Okay, well, what they mean by that? Doesn't everybody know that? I think they were making a slam at Jesus who uh, they would assume because of the way his conception and birth came about that Mary had been messing around with somebody and then pulled the wool over Joseph's eyes. And so Jesus didn't really know who his father was. Might have been a passing Roman soldier. Might have been somebody else that... Mary was probably prostituting herself. 
And uh, so they assumed that Jesus didn't really know who his father was. Abraham is our father. In other words, kind of saying, we don't have any doubt about our heritage. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. And of course, that is a lesson for all of us. Abraham was known as a very faithful man. He was known as one that God had chosen and that God brought into the land of Canaan. And while Abraham never possessed all of the land of Canaan or anything like that, he was promised that everywhere the sole of your foot goes, your descendants are going to inherit this land. And his descendants, of course, are the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelis, the people of Israel. So let's read about their beginning and where they came from. The most unlikely of beginnings, and yet they're still here today. When you look back in Bible times and uh, you find history in archaeology and things like that, there were a lot of people groups and a lot of nations that existed in the time of Israel that don't exist today, yet Israel does. So let's read about it in Genesis chapter 12. Now we're going to refer back to chapter 11, but we're not going to worry about reading that. You can certainly look at it uh, if you want to. But our text is going to be out of Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to look at nine verses. Verse 1. Now the Lord, notice the past tense, had said to Abram, so this is something that happened previous, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you, when you go to that land implied there, uh, I will make you a great nation, not just any nation, a great nation, meaning numerically, powerfully, influentially. That certainly happened. I will bless you and make your name great. We're still talking about him today, aren't we? And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And we find out, I believe it's in chapter 11, why Lot went with him. Lot was Abraham's uh, brother's son, and that brother died, so naturally Abraham took custody. And uh, let's go back to calling him Abram. His name has not been changed yet. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in uh, Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. That's a problem. The Canaanites were in the land. Abraham's a distinct minority here. And verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, this very land. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. It's actually Bet-El. Bet is house and uh, El is short for Elohim or God. Bethel, house of God. It's going to be uh, important in the Old Testament. That's where Jacob saw the ladder with the angels descending there at Bethel. And he pitched his tent with uh, Bethel on the west and Ai or high on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. I'm going to assume that's the first time that had been done in the land of Canaan. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And if you look on the map of Israel and you look at those places to the south, he was certainly in the desert, certainly in the desert. And he was living as a nomad, uh, taking his uh, flocks and his herds from grass to grass, which would be uh, kind of rare in the desert. And so uh, the sheep would eat all of the grass up. They would have to go to another place. But he continued. He didn't leave. He didn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees. He uh, stayed there in the land, the land of promise, the land that had been promised to him by God. So, can you even begin to imagine what it would be like to have the Lord tell you, I want you to leave your home. Well, that would be hard enough. I want you to leave everything familiar. I want you to leave your family. And I want you to go, where are we going, Lord? To a place I will tell you. Uh, don't you know that was a difficult thing for Abram to do? Don't you know that probably his wife and his servants all may have questioned that? Are you sure? Maybe you had a, you know, too much pizza before you went to bed or something like that. But Abram stayed faithful and Abram goes to the land and he goes all the way to the land and then he goes through the land and then while he's there he worships the Lord in the midst of all of those people who worship foreign gods is what they would say. But Abram is faithful as he does this. Now was he perfect? No, we'll find out in subsequent lessons. You know, he was like all of us. He wasn't perfect. But the overall tenor of his life is that he was a faithful man of God. We've said before that God knows we can't be perfect. He's not interested in perfection, but he is interested in the direction of our lives. And that's why we had to have a substitute, the Lord Jesus, to come and be the perfect sacrifice and actually live the perfect life we could never live so that when God demands perfection, if we're in Christ, God gets perfection because Jesus is perfect. Now we can never live up to that, but he can. And Abraham couldn't live up to that either, if that uh, puts you in a little better company. Now what God expects, someone else has to perform for us, and it wasn't Abram. Uh, number one, let's talk about the beginning. Now if you, uh, as I said earlier, look back to Genesis eleven ten and the following verses, you'll find out some things. Abraham was a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. Remember Ham, Shem, and Japheth were the sons of Noah? And Abraham comes out of the branch of Noah's descendants, Shem. Okay? 
and the immediate family lived in Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. Gives us a clue. That's modern day Iraq in, in that area when you look on a map for it. And uh, these people that lived there were not initially worshipers of the true and the living God. Like all of us, they had to be converted. They had to be changed. They had to be brought out. The Bible talks so much about us that when we are saved, we become new creatures in Christ. The Bible talks about us being saved. We are put in Christ, a change of location. We're in Him and He is in us. The Bible talks about us being brought out of darkness in the light and out of the kingdom of, the, uh, of, of Satan into the kingdom of the domain of His Son. There's always a change that takes place when we come to know the Lord. And um, this is what happened in this situation. Abram and his family, they were not always worshipers of the true and living God. That may surprise some of you. But in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Now, it seems the way that is worded, he's not just saying that Terah worshipped other gods, but everybody named there, all of the family, worshipped other gods back then. So when did God reveal himself to Abram and when was he converted? I don't know. It may have been in this uh, 12th chapter or probably sometime before because chapter 12 verse 1 says the Lord had appeared to Abraham. It may have been many years before that. It may have been a short time. We just don't know. We don't have that. In fact... There may be a good spiritual principle in that. You know, we always want to look back and say, well, I know so-and-so is saved or I'm saved because I remember the day when I was eight years old in vacation Bible school when Mrs. Smith uh, took a Bible and showed me the scripture and led me to the Lord. Well, good. But there's a problem with that sometimes because I have known many people over my life that they lived a, an ungodly, carnal, devilish life. And uh, when you ask them, well, I'm concerned about your soul. Oh, don't worry about me, preacher. I remember back in Mrs. So-and-so's class in eight, in, when I was eight years old in VBS and I prayed the prayer and she took her New Testament and showed me some scripture and I trusted Christ. Now, they don't live like it. They don't love the Lord, they don't love the Word, they don't love the church, they don't love lost people. In fact, there's nothing in their life at all that really points to Christ except an experience they had when they were an eight-year-old boy back in VBS with, uh, what name did I say, Mrs. Smith or something like that? Now, I want to ask you a question. If they truly had been born again, if they truly had been saved, don't you think it would show up somewhere in their life. So maybe the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when it happened with Abram. The Bible shows us the fruit of his life, which is faith and obedience. And that's the way it is for you or for me. Because I know some of you that are watching this, you don't know exactly when you're, you were saved and you feel kind of guilty. I'm the same way. I have trouble pinpointing it. 
And uh, I have it written down. In fact, I know where it is in my office. But I never can really remember the date specifically. Um, Some people say, well, you've got to know that. And if you really don't know that, you have never been saved. A lot of guilt comes with it. But do you know the Bible never commands us, write down the date, write down the time, write down the place. Because if you don't know that, you probably have never been saved. And sometimes that causes us maybe to doubt a little bit. Some preachers have said in my lifetime, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. One preacher that many of you would know, but I won't mention his name, he uh, actually said, my friend, don't tell me that the devil is tempting you to uh, doubt your salvation. The devil doesn't tempt you to doubt your salvation. The devil's going to tell you you are saved. That's the Holy Spirit that is bringing up that doubt. And so you get a, a lot of guilt and a lot of funny feelings. How can you be saved and not know it? How can you be saved and not remember that time and that place when you met the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in here in the Bible, in Genesis, it refers back to a time when Abraham had, but it tells us nothing about that, does it? Why? Because in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, you're never called to go back and look at a time when you trusted the Lord. What you are called to do is, who and what are you trusting in now for your salvation? And is there any evidence of that? Okay, We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through this. Abraham, Abram here, the faithful man. Now... He's descended from the branch of Noah's family called the Shem or the Shemites. Does that sound familiar? Well, the term anti-Semite, anti-Semitic, is actually just a shortened, not very much shorter, just one letter, but it's actually could be said as anti-Shemite. That's where that word comes from. It's actually an acknowledgement of the existence of Noah and his three sons, and uh, that the Jews come out of the Shemite line of it, and to hate the Jews is to be an anti-Shemite or anti-Shemitic uh, of that. That's where that term comes from, and uh, that's what we are seeing so much now. That's the beginning. Coming out of Iraq, coming out of a desert area, and coming out of the line of Shem's son Noah. Now, number two. Notice Abraham's call. We'll get into our text in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and uh, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. So notice that there was a specific personal calling. Now, we don't know when that took place. And even when I talk about being um, unsure of when you were saved, I'm not saying that there wasn't a specific time or place. Obviously, there was. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there has to be a time when you do that. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place. I'm just saying that you may not remember it. 
and the Bible never calls you to remember it. And even in this situation, nothing is referring back to that time or place in a specific way. I heard uh, John MacArthur say one time, it's like this, I woke up this morning and the sun was shining. I don't know when it rose, I just know that it's shining. Obviously that means it is a new day, it's another day, and it's a day of life. The same thing is true when it comes to being saved. I don't know when the sun rose, but I know it's shining, and that's the most important thing. And it bothers me because there are so many people who want to fool themselves and they want to play a game. I don't see the sun shining, but I'm going to testify that it arose, even though I'm walking in darkness. Remember what 1 John says about people who claim to walk in the light and yet they're walking in darkness. That's why we use that metaphor of the sunrise. So it's not that you know the date and the time and that secures your salvation. It's that you see the evidence of salvation. And what is the evidence of salvation? Well, you love the Lord, you hate sin, you love the Bible, you love the church, the people of God, you love the gospel, and you're faithful and obedient unto the Lord. So there is a specific personal calling for Abram. We just don't know when it was. And it was a call, like always, to do this. Notice in your uh, lesson book, a call to separate from everything familiar and to the Lord. And by the way, whenever you are separated or surrendered unto the Lord, as the Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, it's always from something and to something. From something and to something. From sin to repentance. From unbelief to faith. From the world to the Lord. That, that type of thing. And there are so many people today that want to say, well, I'm saved, I'm right with God, I've got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but they've never separated from anything and certainly not to anything or to someone. Well, even back here, all the way back in Genesis, that's what Abram did. From the land of his fathers, from his family, from everything familiar, and to this land that he doesn't even know the name of it, and he doesn't know for sure where it is. And so it's a call really here to surrender his future. Now there's a term in there, your father's house. Your father's house. And we think of a house as a building. We think of it as a structure. And so if we think of it like that, Abraham one day said, Bye, Mom. Bye, Dad. I'll see you sometime. I don't know when. Then he walked out the front door. That's not generally the biblical term for house. For a house, we think more of the royal family. Um, what is it in England now? The house of Windsor. That's not a physical place. That's a bloodline. That's their lineage. That's their genealogy. And so when he leaves his father's house, he's leaving everything that is familiar, everything his father owns. And back in those days, when your father died, if you got a good inheritance, it wasn't buildings and it wasn't cash. Could be some silver, could be some gold, but it was mainly land. They loved land. Land meant you were wealthy. Land meant you had a place to live. Land meant you had a place for your cattle and your sheep and your goats. Land meant that you may have had a source of water 
or something like that. And so to leave his father's house was not just to walk out of the physical building. I think it means he left behind his inheritance. He would never live on that land. He would never get that land and say, oh, this is where my dad used to grow his crops. This, my dad put up that tree house. My dad is the one who built that swing set for the grandkids. This, this was my dad's place. He's giving up all of that, everything familiar, and everything that would secure his future because fathers would, live, uh, would work very, very hard to leave an inheritance to their children in those days. But Abram's going to be gone, not going to be around any of it. And uh, so this is a different situation, a surrender of his future. Did you know when you get saved, you are surrendering everything to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying he's boss. He can move me. He can prosper me. He can shut me down. He can take me early. He can give me a long life. It's whatever his will is. And that's what Abram's doing. I'm following the Lord no matter what it is, no matter where it takes me, no matter what it costs me. This is a, a big, big deal. So Abraham is not going to inherit land and he's going to inherit a different land, a new land, and he's going to inherit it from God. Now, when we look at that, we go, well, that's a much better deal. But put yourself in Abram's shoes. How would that sound? How would that feel? How would you explain that to your family? That would be a very, very difficult thing to do. And yet we know that it's the right thing to do. And he does, of course, the right thing. Thirdly, notice that Abram trusted God's promises. How many promises of God do you know? And how many promises that you claim and live by, how many of those do you really study? You know, we don't study promises a whole lot. We just read them and go, oh, that sounds good. And we don't know who they're made to. We don't know what they really mean. We don't know how they're applied. We just think, well, that would be a good thing for me. What is, what is a promise? And even the word blessing comes up in this lesson several times. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great nation. So we have the definition of blessing in this respect. God says to Abram, I will bless you and make your name great or make you a great nation. So the blessing has to do with land. It has to do with power. It has to do with wealth. It has to do with influence. And we try to claim Abraham's blessings. And yet we are claiming a blessing that wasn't given to us. You haven't been given specifically that same blessing. So make sure when you look at a blessing, you understand it and make sure you know what you're claiming and you make sure you know what you are getting. All of this is framed around the idea of God saying, I will bless you. Okay, what's a blessing? Well, for some of us, we might think of a blessing as having all of our family over and having our grandkids crawling on our lap and playing with us and laughing and doing those kind of things. Other people may think about a blessing as getting a, a raise on their job, or they may think about getting a new job or something like that. Somebody who's single may think of the blessing of getting married. It, it's a term that can mean an awful lot of things. What does it mean in Abram's life? God is going to take this one guy out of the Ur of the Chaldeans take him to a completely different place where they have different religions, different cultures, different languages, and somehow out of that one guy, 
childless, by the way, he's going to make a great nation. Now, that's a tall order. It's uh, one of those things where we say, well, God, you got your work cut out for you. But even more so, I would say this, it's a tall order for Abram to believe that. What's he supposed to think? How's he supposed to feel about all of this? And yet what we find that faith controlled him so that even though all of his circumstances looked like nothing was going to happen, he still followed, he still obeyed the Lord. Have you ever read Romans 8, 28? You know what that says. Have you ever acted like it wasn't true? Have you ever acted like things were bad? Have you ever acted like you were getting the short end of the stick? Have you ever acted like you were being cheated? Have you ever acted like life was taking a sour turn? You see, this is what Abram was up against. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to take you away from everything familiar. You're going to leave your inheritance behind. You're going to go to a new land that I show you, and then I'm going to bless you. And not only will I bless you, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and I'm going to make your name great, and you are going to bless the entire earth. Without kids? Are you sure about this? Can you imagine the doubts that must have come up, and yet... He remained faithful. Boy, there's a great lesson we could learn from that, right? So Abram trusted God's promises. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? I believe that's a reference to the Messiah. The Lord Jesus is the one who does that. And he does that as the seed of Abraham. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Don't you wish you could be like that? I do. And I wish I could just trust God, just believe God, and move on with him. So his family would somehow become a significant nation. Well, we know it as the nation of Israel and as the Jewish people that live all over the world. We look at the promise of blessing and we note that it's a personal blessing giving just to him a material blessing, a spiritual blessing, but it's also shared blessings that God says, I will give that blessing and let others participate in it if they bless you, if they say good things about you and support you, and I will curse those who curse you. That uh, brings up a lot of things that are going on in our nation and in the news and around the world today that ought to cause us to be concerned. And so judgment is going to come upon those who oppose Abram because they are opposing the will, the plan, and the purpose of God. And number four, Abram's faith, well, it led to obedience and worship. Now, the reason we put those two things together, some people claim to be followers of God. They never obey, but they go to church. They read their Bible, but they never get around to doing anything that it says that there's a problem with that. And then there are other people that uh, say that I, I'm right with God, but they never get around to obeying. And so the two things go together. You can't really obey without being a worshiper, and you're not really a worshiper if you're not obeying. I went a long way around to say that, but it, it's so true. And so we find, so Abraham in verse 4, departed as the Lord had spoken to him, 
and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Doesn't tell us anything about their trip, does it? And Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth trees of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. This is because Moses is writing this while Israel is on their way to the land of Canaan to drive them out, right? They're still there. In verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And uh, he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai or high on the east. And there again he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. In other words, he wasn't trying to get away, he wasn't trying to leave, he wasn't trying to go back, he wasn't trying to do it. He was right there in the land, he was permanent in it, he was indwelling in it, he had everything that he owned there with him, his family and servants. And uh, when it says the people that he acquired, some uh, commentators say that's talking about proselytes, people that quit worshiping idols and started worshiping the true and the living God and they all lived together and they worked together and they helped each other and they went with Abram when he went unto the land of Canaan. So the bottom line is he obeyed in spite of the obstacles. His age, he wasn't a young man, he wasn't a spring chicken. In spite of the difficulty of the journey, that is not an easy part of the world to travel in the way they had to travel. Desert, most of it. And the Canaanites are in the land. How do you think they're going to feel about this invader coming in? How do you think they're going to feel about Abram and all of his entourage coming in and uh, competing with them for water, competing with them for pasture, all of that type of thing? And the number of people that must be, think about it, all these people that are listed here have to be led, they have to be protected, and they have to be transported. Not an easy thing to do. In fact, notice verse 5, Then Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother, brother's son, and their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And Abraham is responsible for all of that. That's pretty amazing because every excuse in the world could be not a good time of year, not a good route, too many people, too much stuff, hard to transport all of that. And yet he uh, went along with it. And notice here that when he got there, what did he do? He worshipped. He didn't gripe. He didn't complain. He worshipped. He built altars, permanent markers for the uh, worship of the true and the living God in a land of idolatry. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. When Jesus taught us to pray, the first thing he said was, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I think every time I reference that, how many times the Lord's name is used in vain, it's used as a curse word, 
It's used in a filthy, disgusting manner. It's used, maybe even worse, in a thoughtless manner, like a byword. Can you imagine what it was like in the land of Canaan? All of those pagan gods and idols, their names are called upon. And when Abram gets to Canaan, he stops, he builds an altar, and for the first time there, the Lord hears his name called out in worship, called out in reverence, called out in respect, called out in love, called out in a peaceful way. It must have blessed the Lord. And then it says that he continued to travel to the south and uh, that's searching for more pasture, more uh, uh, water for the livestock, that type of thing. In other words, he intends to stay there. He not only obeyed initially, but he continued on. Now don't you have some great problems with people who say they know the Lord, love the Lord, but they don't obey the Lord? Or if they initially obey the Lord, they don't as they get older. They don't in later times. They just don't obey the Lord. It's not that they can't. Somebody obviously that is old and frail, maybe confined to a nursing home or a hospital or their bed fast or something, there are some things that they can't do that they would do if they were up and around and they were mobile. This isn't designed to give people guilt. This is just designed to say people that could obey and should obey and know to obey but don't obey or used to obey, there's kind of a problem with all of that. Used to, used to, used to. You hear a lot of people say that. And as a man in Tuttle said, they're like peacock Christians. Their glory is behind them. And that's a, a sad place to be. But not Abraham. Abraham continued on with the Lord. It wasn't just a one-time thing and then he did whatever he wanted to do. He was faithful unto the Lord. So let's conclude. God calls his people to surrender all and receive his blessing. And our faith in his word is shown by our obedience. That's what we've been trying to say. And God's word, God's presence, and God's power confirm his promises to the faithful and they will proclaim their faith through worship. So while this is a very different time, very different place, very different situation, and yet the similarities are striking in that conclusion, that's what we learn from this, and that is the way we are supposed to learn. So thank you for your time. I pray you're fed, I pray you're encouraged, and I pray you enjoy this study as we look at the Father of the Jews, Father Abraham, as he's called, and we learn and glean from his life. So thank you, teachers, once again as you teach this lesson. Thank you for those of you who are keeping up with your class through all of this. I really appreciate it and say, uh, hello, Chuck. While we're doing this, by the way, God bless you. We miss you. And uh, thank you for your time. And again, God bless you as you study.